following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so we are going to take a bit of a gear shift now and head straight into, into the message and straight into Scripture. So if you've got a Bible, now's the time to open that up or open up your Bible app and pull out uh, 2 Corinthians. Going to be back in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we are journeying through this book over the course of this year. We've worked through uh, a couple of chapters, almost a couple of chapters already, and we've got study sheets available for the series, uh, but we are, we're working through this letter, and it is an, an ancient letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the church that, was, uh, that he was struggling in his relationship with. And this is really the key. If you've, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians and then read 2 Corinthians, you know that these are really two, two quite different letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul's dealing with the troubles within the church itself, all the challenges within this dysfunctional church. But then in 2 Corinthians, he's primarily dealing with his own relationship with the church that's falling apart and the, and the struggles that he's having with this congregation. So he's got two quite different things in mind, two quite different focus areas as he writes these letters. That's why they look so different. So for today, we are just a short passage of Scripture, but I have loved digging into this passage particularly over the past couple of weeks. Not one that I'd looked at much before, but there's some real richness here in, 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 in what Paul says that we will unpack as we go through. So uh, from verse 12 in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Uh, One of the challenges that we've got at the moment, Anna and I, as parents, is trying to encourage our boys to be interested in the Bible. And it's, I don't know whether it's particularly tricky with boys, but trying to encourage them to um, think about the Bible and be interested in the Bible and encounter the stories of the Bible and finding the ways of, of piquing their interest in the Bible. So what we've got at the moment is this Action Bible. We've got this big, fat, black Bible called the Action Bible. And it's good. It's particularly good for boys because it lays out the whole story of the Bible in comic strip form. So they quite like that, and it really plays up the stories that have got any action in them. So whenever there's a story that's got some violence in it, like some big battle scene in the Old Testament, the, the, the pictures are huge, strewn across the page. Anytime there's drama or suspense or you know, some sort of victory, you know, Samson or David, whatever it is, they've got these big comic strip pictures, and it's working. I mean, the kids are actually quite engaged in this. It's great. But it's, it's working, I think, a little bit too much. Because what's now happening is that almost every night after we have whatever Bible story we're having, The kids want to turn straight to Revelation. And they love looking at the seven-headed dragon in Revelation. 
That's their favorite Bible character. And they'll have the conversations about what's your favorite beast in Revelation. I love this beast. I love that beast. And they're talking about their favorites. It's gotten to the point now where Lawson, our four-year-old, he's just committed a new passage of Scripture to memory. He's just memorized a new passage. The first, this is only the second passage he's ever memorized. The first one was the Lord's Prayer. That was lovely. But now, you know the passage he's memorized? The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So he can, he can rattle those off now. War and sickness and famine and death. And he, he gave us all a little public reading of Scripture the other night as he rattled off the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So we're kind of struggling to you know, engage them in the right way in Scripture. There could be some very strange theology coming out of those boys in years to come. But I can see the way that one of the, one of the issues with helping kids engage with Scripture is to help them understand metaphor in the Bible. And help them understand when you come across these pictures of a seven-headed dragon that it's not actually talking about a seven-headed dragon. It's talking about Satan or it's talking about something else. And, and those kinds of metaphors and symbols crop up a lot in the Bible. And it's challenging to communicate that to kids because kids think in very concrete ways. And we're trying to explain that this symbol or this word picture, it actually means something else. It actually means something other than what it just looks like on the page. So that's quite hard. And I think it's a challenge to some degree for all of us to work through the metaphor in Scripture, work through the symbols and the images and the metaphors and look at these things where one thing is said, but it actually means something else or it actually represents something else. And we get to one of these metaphors today in Paul's letter. It's not quite the seven-headed dragon of Revelation, but it is a metaphor. And in fact, this whole passage is built around a metaphor a word picture that Paul uses. It's a brilliant word picture, one of the best in any of his letters. And there's depth and richness to it when you get it. But it's not particularly easy. It's not even easy to detect what the metaphor is. It doesn't jump off the page at you. And then even when you get it, it's, it's not particularly easy to unpack. But if you stay with this image that Paul uses, and it is just one image, then the richness of what he's saying comes out. And it's a remarkable metaphor about what it means to live as a Christian in the world that we find ourselves in. So the metaphor that he uses, the key image that unlocks this passage is in verse 14. Just have a look at that. He says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, those two words, in my translation at least, two words, triumphal procession is just one word in Greek, and it's a technical term that refers to a very specific event in Paul's day, a particular custom in Paul's day, and that's the metaphor that he's tapping into. The custom or the event is known as the Roman triumph, the Roman triumph. And it's exactly the same word that Paul uses here, so as soon as he uses it, that's the association that people would have had. Now, the Roman triumph was a huge parade that the Romans put on. And they'd put on the parade whenever they won a big military victory. So the Roman army would conquer some new people group or some nation, and then they would have a huge parade down the main street, often of Rome, I think, was where these things were typically done. And it would be a massive celebration of the victory that Rome had won. It was kind of like the equivalent in our context might be the big parade the All Blacks had up Queen Street when they won the Rugby World Cup. It's that kind of thing. It's a huge, big civic cultural celebration and everybody comes out and everybody gets into it and everybody participates in it. And this was just a lavish parade. It was just over the top and it just reinforced all the glory of the Roman Empire. So you would have, often you would have Caesar himself 
at the front of the parade as the great leader of the empire. And you would have toward the front the, the Roman general who had won this particular victory. So it was his procession, really. And you'd have all these Roman soldiers walking through the streets. You'd have the flower petals falling. You'd sometimes have people carrying the spoils of war, treasures that they'd taken from the enemy nation. And you would have right at the back of the parade, you would have these captives, these prisoners of war. So when Rome conquered another people group, they would take some of the leading figures and leaders in that people group, in that nation, as prisoners of war. They'd kill a whole lot of them, but they'd take some particular leaders and they would put them in their parade. They'd actually put them at the back of the parade in in a humiliating fashion and they'd lead them in this procession and then the parade would wind its way through the streets and it would eventually get to the arena, the theater, and the crowds would fill the theater and the great climax of the Roman triumph, the parade, would be the execution of the prisoners and they'd be publicly slaughtered for everyone to see. Now, I've got a video of the Roman triumph. It is... (laughs) It is a little bit graphic toward the end, okay? So this is my disclaimer. It's about a three-minute video. So parents, if you have young kids and if you want to take them out, this would be a good time to do that. If you want to just take them out for five minutes and come back in, the video's three minutes, something long. There's a graphic bit at the end because it does enact this execution of the prisoner at the end of the parade. So this is my disclaimer. This is fair warning, okay? But we're going to watch this video. And um, Pete, can you kill the lights for us? It, It may still be a little bit hard to see, but we'll just do our best and hopefully this gives you a sense of it. So there it is. It wasn't usually accompanied by techno music, just so you know. If you're looking for the DJ in there, he wasn't part of it. But that's basically how it went. And so it's a pretty brutal kind of affair uh, for these prisoners being led to their execution. But this was all, for the Roman Empire, this was all a huge big PR exercise. The whole thing was designed to reinforce the power of the empire, to reinforce Rome's identity as this dominant brutal empire that you don't dare mess with. And so it just put all of that on display for everybody to see. So this is the image that Paul uses uh, quite clearly in verse 14. He taps into this particular custom. And everyone agrees that that's the image Paul uses in verse 14. But what's interesting is people have different views on why Paul uses this image. What's he doing with this metaphor? That's the question. It's all very well to refer to this, but why does Paul use this image? Why does he tap into the image of the Roman triumph in his letter? And biblical scholars disagree on this. There are two quite different views of what's going on here and what Paul's doing with this metaphor. So let me talk you through these views, and I'll tell you where I land on this, and you can make up your own mind. In the, in the NIV translation that I'm reading from, which is the NIV 2011, it says, verse 14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, quite clearly, where does that sound like Paul is in the parade? At the end, right? I mean, he, the English says, as he leads us as captives. So by that view, Paul is basically placing himself at the end of the parade, and he's using this image to say, I'm like a captive who's being led in this procession, and basically I'm being led to my death, would be what he's saying. That he's he's picturing himself as being led to execution, being led to the slaughter. And so then it kind of becomes a picture of Paul's suffering and Paul's difficulties and Paul's hardship that eventually is going to end in Paul's death. 
and the whole metaphor gets taken in that direction. Now, that may be what Paul is saying here, but there are a couple of problems with that view. Even though, in one sense, it's appealing to think of Paul as one of those prisoners, and it sort of resonates with maybe how Paul might see himself. Uh, In the Greek version, the Greek wording of this text, the word captives is not there. So the Greek text just literally reads, God is the one always leading us in triumph in Christ. God is the one always leading us in triumph in Christ. So that doesn't sound to me like Paul's a captive in the parade. That sounds like Paul's on the winning team. If he's being led in triumph, it sounds like he could actually be part of the victory here, not part of the prisoner of war group that's going on. And the other thing to keep in mind, if Paul was saying here that he's a captive in this procession and he's being led, therefore, to his death, and you think about the relationship then between Paul and Christ. If Jesus is the victor, the ones who are the prisoners are the enemies of Christ. The ones who are the prisoners are the ones that are being led to death by God as the reigning, victorious, conquering hero. And that sets up a strange relationship between God and Paul that I don't think Paul would ever have said, that he's an enemy of God, that he's a God's prisoner of war, that God is leading to this, this kind of death. It sets Paul in opposition to Jesus in a way that sounds quite strange. So I'm not convinced that Paul's using the metaphor that way. There's another way of understanding this, this verse, and it's actually captured in the earlier version of the, of the NIV. If anyone's reading from the NIV 1984, the translation sounds a little bit different. It says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. So this is an interesting case study in translation because between 1984 and 2011, the NIV changed the translation of this verse and they put in the word captives. Even though it's not there in the Greek, and I generally like the NIV and it's a good translation, but I don't think that was the right move. The word captives is not there in the Greek. They've made an interpretive decision to interpret the text that way. But I think the 1984 translation is better because it portrays Paul not as one of the prisoners being led to execution, but as part of this triumph, as part of this parade, as part of the winning team. I think that's where Paul places himself. Now, you can make up your own mind on that, but it does affect your interpretation of what Paul's saying here. Because if Paul's not one of the captives, if he's not the guy being led to execution, then where is he in this parade? What's Paul's role in this Roman triumph or this Christ triumph that's going on? And this is where the next verse becomes so relevant. This makes sense, I think, more sense of what Paul says at the end of verse 14. He says, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, some people say, well, all Paul's done here is switch metaphors. He's just kind of getting his metaphors mixed up. He was talking about the Roman triumph. Now he's off on this metaphor about smell and perfume and fragrance and all that, and he's just kind of moved on. But in fact, I think that Paul has still got the image of the Roman triumph in mind when he talks about spreading the aroma of Christ around, which is what he talks about in the following several verses. Because one of the roles that people had in this triumphal procession, you didn't see it, unfortunately, on the video, but one of the roles people had was the role of the incense bearer in the procession. So there were specific people in this parade and their role was to burn incense along the way and they would have these fragrances and herbs and so on and they'd have a censer, a container and they'd be burning the incense along the way and it would release the smoke 
into the air and it would be this beautiful smell that wafted out for the spectators to enjoy. So if you, were, if you were a spectator, if you were just standing on the street watching that parade, it was a multi-sensory experience. You would see all the, the pomp and ceremony of Rome. You would hear the, the thundering of the soldiers' boots and the, and the roar of the crowd, and you would smell the incense that's drifting up. And all of this reinforces the glory and the beauty and the power of Rome. And Paul, I think, is placing himself in this parade in the role of the incense bearer. He's saying, we're on the winning team. We're not one of these captives that's being led to slaughter. We're on the winning team. And what we are, we're the incense bearers that are coming along behind Christ, spreading this fragrant aroma all over the place. We're spreading the aroma of Christ around us as we go through our life, through our deeds, through our words, through our ministry. We are spreading this aroma of Christ so that others may get a whiff of Jesus and hopefully be drawn to him. I think that makes more sense of all that Paul says in this passage, both about the triumph and about the aroma, about the fragrance, because they all tie together in this image of the Roman procession. It also makes sense of the next thing that Paul says, where he talks about being an aroma of life and death. He says in verse 16, to the one, we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. And uh, Margaret Carr reminded me of this this morning when we were praying and I was talking to the guys over here about what I was going to be preaching on this morning and the aroma of Christ. And she said, don't forget, we are also the aroma of death. So that put a real damper on our prayer meeting this morning. But she's right. We are, in one sense, the aroma of death because that's what Paul says. We are the aroma of life on the one hand. We're the aroma of death on the other hand. Now think about the role of the incense bearers in this parade. As that incense is wafting up, if you're on the winning team... That smells like victory. If you're on the winning team, that reinforces the power and the continuing life of this empire and this general who lives to fight another day. But if you are that prisoner at the back, what is this the smell of? Death. Right? That incense is almost like a symbol of your impending doom. It's a symbol that you are, about, you are living the final minutes of your life and you're about to meet an untimely death. That incense has a double function. It is the smell of life to the victors. It is the smell of death to those who have been conquered. And Paul, I think, uses it the same way. He says, as we go about our ministry and we're being the fragrance of Christ around us, to some people, we're the smell of life. If people's hearts are open to the gospel, if people's hearts are open to us, we're like the smell of life and they're drawn to Christ. But for other people, we are the stench of death. To these super apostles in Corinth who couldn't stand Paul, couldn't stand his ministry, preaching a different kind of gospel, he was a stench in their nostrils. They wanted nothing to do with them. And Paul here cunningly says, by rejecting me, by treating me as the smell of death, you're basically reinforcing your own place in the parade, which is at the back of the queue, at the back of the line. That's what's happening. So when you put this whole word picture together, it's really quite stunning. Paul is saying, Jesus has won a massive victory. On the cross, in his resurrection, Jesus has won a victory over Satan, over death, over sin. And now there is this triumphal procession that's going out through the world, taking a cue from the Roman triumphal procession. He pictures it like the gospel movement, the church, the kingdom of God is now like this triumphal procession, winding its way through the world, this victory march where the victory of Jesus is being outworked. Jesus is at the head of the parade as the conquering king, the powers and authorities of darkness are at the back of the parade as the ones that have been conquered and now are being led to their death. And Paul and his ministry team are in the middle of the parade as the incense bearers, as the ones who along the way are spreading the aroma of Christ around. 
and, and contributing, participating in this triumphal procession that's going on. And you can already start to see, can't you, how this intersects with our lives, because that's who we are as well. And that's why Paul writes this. This is what he wants the Corinthian church to get in on. This is who we are invited to be. We're part of the parade. We're part of this triumphal procession. The triumphal procession of Christ is still going on. It's still winding its way through the world today. The victory of Christ is still being outworked today. The powers of darkness are still being led to their death today by Christ. And we're still in the middle of the parade. We're carrying it on from Paul. You and I, those who belong to Jesus, we're now part of the parade and we get to take up the role of being God's incense bearers, spreading the aroma of Christ around. This wasn't just Paul's job. It's not just a job for church planters, not just a job for professional missionaries and professional Christians and whoever else. It is a job for all those who belong to Jesus. This is our calling, this is our vocation in the world, is to spread the aroma of Christ. So we need to think through what that means what that looks like in our world and in our lives. What does it mean for us today to be the aroma of Christ, to be this fragrance of Christ to those around us who don't know Jesus? Paul talks about it in a couple of different ways in this passage. First, in verse 15, uh, verse 14, sorry, he says, God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we're responsible as Christians for spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus. Now, if we're going to spread the knowledge of Christ, that means helping people to know Christ. That means actually being willing to open our mouths and talk about our faith. That actually means speaking up about our identity as Christians. It means looking for those opportunities that we have to say something about our faith to someone else. That's part of what spreading the aroma of Christ means. Being aware of those opportunities just in the course of our everyday lives to share a Christian perspective on that issue that pops up in conversation at your workplace to share a little bit of your story with someone, your faith story. Maybe to share a little bit of God's story with someone if the opportunity arises. Maybe just as a first step in being the aroma of Christ, it just means letting people in your world know that you're a Christian. How many of your workmates know you're a Christian? How many people that you mix with at the gym would know that you're a Christian? How many people in your social circles know that you're a Christian? This is a good place to start, right? Just find, I'm not talking about sending out a company-wide email, just finding a way, just appropriately, sensitively, finding a way of just letting people know that you're a Christian. I mean, it could be as simple as tomorrow when someone asks you what you did at the weekend, you actually say you went to church. It's a big step. It's a big call. Because I know, how, I know how it works. You know, someone says, what do you do at the weekend? You say, oh, well, on Saturday, I did this, this, this. And then, uh, yeah, we had this Mother's Day lunch on Sunday. Just skip over the morning. And then in the afternoon, we did this in the evening, and that was my weekend. What did you do? And we just conveniently fudged the church bit. Now, this actually relies on you coming to church, okay, for this example to work. But I'm assuming because you're here this morning, this is going to work for you tomorrow. So when someone asks you what you did at the weekend, how about just actually saying, maybe even the first thing you say is, oh, I went to church on Sunday morning. And who knows? I mean, sometimes that, that may be a conversation killer. It may be. They, they may not follow up on that at all. Other times they will. That's okay. You put it out there. And then once people know you're a Christian, then... Then they associate your life with being a Christian. But you could be the most moral person in the world, and if someone doesn't know you're a Christian, they may just think you're a really moral atheist. 
They might think you're a really moral Buddhist, Hindu, or Muslim. Unless they know that you're a Christian, it's going to be difficult for you to really be the aroma of Christ. So just start there. Start by finding a way this week, tomorrow if you can, of just letting someone, some people know, your identity as a Christian. And then looking for the ways to say a word, to speak up. You know those moments that come along, and they come along quickly, and they're gone just as quickly. And those are moments to lean into rather than shy away from. Those moments just to say something, just to put it out there, share a Christian perspective, share something. Just have the courage to lean into those moments. This is part of what it means to be the aroma of Christ to those around us. But it's not just our words. It is also our lives. And this is where Paul gets to in this passage. He says in verse 15, look at the way he puts it, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. So he doesn't just say we speak the aroma of Christ. He says we are. In our very lives, we are the aroma of Christ. It's such a powerful metaphor because our sense of smell is one of those senses that has such strong associations with it. You think of the smells in your life that can, that can trigger particular memories, particular associations. You know, if I go home and open up a, a, a thing of sunscreen, you know, this time of year the weather's getting colder, but you go home, you open up the sunscreen and have a smell, and what happens? Instantly transported to the beach, right? You just instantly transported to all those things that you've just done over summer, the parks, the beaches, the pools. It just takes you there because smell is like that. It's such a strong association. And Paul is saying when people get a whiff of our lives, they should get a whiff of Christ. There should be something about our lives that people can actually smell Jesus on us if we are Christians. Not just our words, but also our character. Something about our character. How much can the people that you work with, the people that you interact with, your friends, family, whoever, how much can they smell Jesus on you? How much do they get a whiff of your life and your character and who you are and they would associate you with Christ and somehow maybe in a positive way be drawn to him because of that. Paul talks about what this means for him in, in his own character in this passage. He says in the end of this, in this chapter, verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. So he's saying one, one thing, one decision that Paul has made is he's not going to take money from this church. He could, and he does take money from other churches, but he's decided he's not going to take money from the Corinthian church because the super apostles, that's all that they were focused on doing. They just wanted to fleece the congregation and have all the money for themselves. It was this completely self-promoting thing. And so Paul is saying, I want to be set apart in my character. I want to be distinct. I want to live a different kind of life. I want to be seen to have different kinds of values and different kinds of priorities. And in his case, that meant not taking money from this church, even though that was a financial sacrifice for him. He said, I'm not going to peddle the word of God for profit. That's what it looked like for Paul to be the aroma of Christ so that when people smelt his character, smelt his life, they got a whiff not of this kind of self-promoting thing that the super apostles were into, but they somehow got a whiff of Jesus. What does this mean for you in your life? What does it mean for other people to be able to smell Christ when they're around you? Maybe it's about the way that you treat other people in your workplace or just in your social circles. Maybe it's just about who you are as a person and the way that you interact with other people the words that you speak to other people and about other people, is that something that distinguishes you 
as a Christian, your way of talking, your way of communicating, your way of carrying yourself in your workplace, your conduct? Or are you just blending in? Are you just exactly the same as everyone else? So that you're really just, just you've got ultimately nothing to offer them because you're just exactly the same as they are. What about the decisions that you make, the priorities that you have, the values that you reflect to other people, the direction that your life is heading, the things that you choose to spend your time doing, the things that you choose not to spend your time doing, the conversations you choose not to engage in at work, the things that you avoid because you're a Christian. These are distinctions in our lives as well. What are the ways that people around you could get just a little smell of Christ when they're around you? What is the step that you could take in that regard? Because if we don't have anything distinct about our life, then ultimately people aren't going to smell Christ on us and they're not going to be drawn to Christ through us. We don't have anything to offer them. It's not about being a perfect person. Of course, we are broken, sinful people, and we're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. But even in our failures, we can be the aroma of Christ. What about asking for forgiveness when you've messed up? That's something so few people do, but what would distinguish you when you get something wrong and the way you respond to failure as a Christian, the way you respond to your own mistakes, that can be something that you offer a different kind of response as a Christian, a response of humility, of taking responsibility, of open conversation and not talking to third parties, of just straightforward humility and conduct. These are things, and especially once people know you're a Christian, that will help them to gain an association of Jesus through your life and gain a whiff of Christ through your conduct. And we've got to remember the way that Paul describes it. Sometimes we're going to be the smell of life, and sometimes we're going to be the smell of death. And it's going to go both ways. Our witness in the world... Once we're being the aroma of Christ, it's going to have a double impact. And you don't always know which way it's going to go. To some people, life. To some people, death. Some people, when their hearts are open or when God's really working in their heart, that we, we, we can talk and we can be a Christian and they, they're just drawn. And I, I had this experience years ago. There was a friend of mine. We were studying together. And she was just, in a way, I think I look back and I didn't really do that much at all. I kind of fumbled the ball. But she was just drawn to Christ. And she showed up at my church one day. And she, I invited her on an Alpha course. And she actually came along. It's amazing. Didn't even expect it. And then one morning she came um, and said to me, last night I joined your little club, which was a way of saying I've become a Christian. And I look back and think, man, I, I barely contributed anything to that. But God was just at work in her heart. And somehow she just got the sense of the aroma of Christ and her heart was open and it was the smell of life. And she was drawn, and her life was changed. And sometimes that can happen. And you may never see the results of it, but you don't know how your, your life and the fragrance of Christ might be drawing someone along their spiritual journey in a, in a positive way. But the opposite also happens. We can be the aroma of death. And sometimes, and you think, you know, in our, in our culture, in our secular age, Christians often are the stench of death. We often are the aroma of death to other people. And that is just part of where we find ourselves in the world and where we are in this cultural moment in history. But it doesn't mean we stop being the aroma of Christ. It means that we trust God with that and we continue to speak about Jesus and show the love of Jesus to those around us. I remember I used to work with a woman that was just really anti-Christian. You know, some people are just kind of neutral and then some people you get the anti ones. She was anti. 
And she just made it quite clear that she was not interested in Christians, Christianity at all. So one day, I was inviting people at, in, in, in our workplace to some outreach event that our church was running. And I went over to her desk very meekly and put a little invitation to this event on her desk. And she was there. And it was just one of these humbling experiences. And she just said very emphatically, I'm not Christian. Wasn't even a Christian. You know how people talk like that? They, they leave out a. Ah. She just said, I'm not Christian. And that was that. And then the invitation dropped on the floor and I had to pick it up. And that was even more humbling. And then I had to put it back on her desk and just walk away. And you sort of just had that sense of, oh, this didn't go very well. But I, I look back and I'm glad that I invited her. I'm glad that I just took that step. I think in some ways it probably built more courage in me than anything that it might have done for her. And just built that sense of this is right to still take these steps. And okay, if my life is the smell of death to her, so be it. Um, and that I've got to leave that with God. But what I can do is invite and say something and be okay with who I am in Christ and just trust God. But I don't want to shrink back because of the response that I may or may not get. And let's be honest, in our New Zealand context, the worst that it's likely to get, unless you're looking down the barrel of a gun, but the worst that it's likely to get is a little bit of social awkwardness, right? A little bit of discomfort, social discomfort. And when you put that next to the persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are going through and have gone through historically, we're really not doing that bad. We really don't have to face anything that terrible. It might be slightly socially uncomfortable, to actually put yourself out there as a Christian, say something or invite someone or give them a book like The Case for Christ or something like that. But the most that you're likely to have to put up with is a little bit of social awkwardness. And frankly, it's a small price to pay for being the aroma of Christ. But we need to be aware that to some we'll be the aroma of life and to some we'll be the aroma of death. But this is our calling as Christians. This is our lives and this is our words and this is our conduct is to be the incense bearers of God spreading this fragrance of Christ around us, being unashamed of that and trusting God with whatever result that might happen to have in the hearts of people that we come in contact with. So just to give us some time to reflect on this, because I'm really conscious this is a beautiful word picture. I think this is a stunning metaphor Paul uses, but it's also a really easy one just to leave in a very kind of ethereal space and we all nod our heads and that was nice, Paul, thanks very much for that, and we go home unchanged. And this is an issue where we need to work this out and walk this out in our lives in relation to real flesh and blood people that we know, colleagues, family members, neighbors, people in our sports teams, whoever they are, and think about who we are in relation to these people, what it means to be the aroma of Christ in relation to these people. So I want to end just with a series of questions, just four or so questions, um, and just give us a minute or so just to reflect, think about this in relation to our own lives, and just use the time to allow God maybe to bring names and faces to your mind, people he might be calling you to take a step towards and be the aroma of Christ. So let's reflect on these questions as we close. Do we honestly desire to be the aroma of Christ to those around us? How aware are we of the promptings of the Spirit through the day to say or show something of Christ to those around us? How distinct is our life as a Christian to those around us? And how much would others say they can smell Christ on us? Let's take a minute or two to think about those questions. God, just as we're thinking 
and reflecting on our own lives. We want to also thank you, God, that you have won an amazing victory. And you are leading us in this triumphal procession. God, we we feel how difficult it is to speak up for our faith in a secular world. And we don't know what the responses are going to be that we will get. But we also step back, God, and we remember that we are part of the winning team. And we're part of this great victory. And in the big picture, there is a triumphal procession that's going on. And we're a part of it. And I pray, God, particularly in those moments when it is hard to speak up, And when it is hard to say something and it's hard to be a a bold witness for you, I pray you just return this image to our mind of the great triumphal procession that you are leading us in. Even though sometimes it feels like the world is against us, God, give us the eyes to see that we are part of the victory march. We're part of the victory march that you are leading and that one day will end in you bringing about the fullness of your kingdom in this world. So for now, God, even though it's hard, we pray that you give us courage to be bold witnesses for you, to be the aroma of Christ to those around us. God, help us not to do that in ways that are just negative all the time. Help us not to be the aroma of Christ just always by talking about what we don't like and what we stand against as Christians, but to be that positive fragrance of Christ through our words, through our lives, and help this to be something that just becomes part of who we are, just embedded in our lives, embedded in our character, just showing your love and sharing your love with those around us. And bring to our minds now, Father, particular names and faces of people that you would have us speak to or show your love to in some way this week, that we would be a fragrant offering to them and that in some way they could smell you just in our very lives, in our very character and our very conduct. We thank you, God, that you've made us part of this great triumphal movement that is taking place. We want to be full of joy and full of boldness and full of confidence as we go from here out into the world and out into the week that awaits us. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, Or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.